The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. We're in a series entitled The Places of the Passion, and uh, this morning we're going to talk about uh, the place of the trials. And this is before Pontius Pilate, and then Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and then Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And that account is in Luke chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, page 1639. And then uh, if you look in your outline, uh, you'll see that there's a number of other places that we will uh, be in the scriptures. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and 4, and then Isaiah also chapter 53. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, and we'll enter into the reading of uh, this text with um, a couple of questions. And there are really three core questions uh, centering around the passion. And you'll see this uh, if you attend all the services on Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday, Good Friday through Easter. And these questions will swirl. And underneath the events you'll ask, so what's really happening here? And who's really in control? Because it'll be uh, the sense that um, in Christ's betrayal and in his trial and his crucifixion, what is God doing in all of this? Who's really in control of all of this? And, and for what purpose or benefit is this really happening? And if that applies to the passion of Christ, to his suffering, uh, I'd like to suggest to you that it also will apply to you as you suffer. Because as you suffer, you're asking the same questions, aren't you? So what's, what's really happening in all of this? And does God have his hand upon it? Is he in control? Um, and what really, what really is the purpose of it all? So Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him, and they blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priest and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. And from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. 
The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Now we have these questions. What's really happening, and who's in control, and what really is the purpose? And I think they're common questions to us whenever suffering occurs. And I think what we should perhaps see is that questions, um, they till the soil. So your you know, prayers, really, uh, the seeds of your prayers are rooted and planted in this soil that is turned up or tilled by all the questions that you have. And so um, the psalmists give us a wonderful picture of this. In fact, if you are full of questions about what God is doing in your life or why the suffering I encourage you to read the Psalms. And I turned the corner on the Psalms when I uh, really realized that the Psalms are not a book to be studied, but they are a book to be prayed. You pray the Psalms. You don't necessarily study the Psalms. And so as you pray the Psalms, you will hear your questions and your um, wondering about God's activity uh, brought up with all those who have gone before us. An example, Psalm 77. See if you, um, you relate to some of these questions. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Have you ever voiced some of those questions? Psalmist does it. The Lord Jesus does it. He prays the Psalms. He is the content of the Psalms. He's the one who from the cross prays Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Psalmist then continues. says, well, then I thought, to this I will appeal the years of the right hand of the Most High. I, in the midst of all my questions, will do what? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And I will meditate on all his wonderful works. So in the midst of the questions, the Holy Spirit directs us to the deeds of the Lord. The deeds of the Lord, Old Testament and New Testament, always point to the work of Messiah. 
to the work of Jesus the Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so what's really happening? Who's really in control? What really is the purpose? All those can be answered when we look to the cross. When we look to the cross and the Passion Week and the resurrection, we get the answer. What's really happening? Well, the triune God is working all things together for a redemptive good. Maybe not the good that I want, or in my own mind, but the redemptive good. That's what's happening. Who's really in control? Well, we'll hear that the devil will scheme, but Jesus always wins. Because on the third day, you go to an empty tomb. And when you wonder, what is the purpose of it all? It's the forgiveness of sins, sins taken, life given. Sins taken, life given. So what's really happening? Let's look, first of all, at the gospel. Luke chapter 22 and 23. What you have here is a uh, courtroom setting. Jesus is on trial. And at this trial, he stands before the rulers of the day, before Pilate, before Herod, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and there is accusations brought before him. But from the text, we'll find that he is falsely accused. And Pilate and Herod both declare him to be innocent. That's the verdict. And to keep that in mind as we go throughout the text and also throughout Holy Week, that here is a man who has been declared innocent. Three times the text says something like this. Verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Verses 14 through 15, Pilate says, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. And if anyone was concerned about rebellion, who would it be in, in the city of Jerusalem? It would be Pilate. He says, okay, this has piqued my ears a little bit about, about rebellion, but I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. And I sent him also to Herod, and neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Third time, and Pilate is a wise man because his wife is troubled in the middle of the night about you know, Jesus in her dreams. He says, he's an innocent, innocent man, leave him alone. Third time, verse 22, why, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I will have him punished and then release him. So you tell me. Jesus is on trial, he is accused, and what's the verdict? Innocent. Innocent. Do you know how the story continues? An innocent man is marched out to a cross to be punished. To be punished. The Gospels and all of the Scriptures want to declare to us that in the events of Holy Week, we are dealing with an innocent man who is the Son of God, spotless, pure, blameless. Before God, before men, he stands there innocent. And people, rulers, without really any vested interest in the story itself, declare it to be so. What happens? Well, turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. We will hear it. We will hear it from the prophet. And uh, if you were to ever read Isaiah 53, in fact, maybe do it this week, and you might catch yourself saying, boy, this should have been a New Testament account because it seems as if the prophet is standing right at the foot of the cross as he's writing these words. But the words we're about to read were written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. But they speak of 
they proclaim that an innocent man is going to go to the cross, he will take sin upon him, and he will be declared guilty and die for those sins. So, follow the column on the left-hand side, you'll see the events. He's on trial, he's falsely accused, the verdict is innocent. He's pushed to the cross by the crowd's cry, crucify him, Pilate washes his hand of it. So he goes to the cross, and in that event now, all of a sudden, the spotless one now is stained by our sin, and so he assumes the sin of the whole world when he goes to the cross. And get this, when he assumes the sin of the whole world, what now is he rightly declared? Guilty. And what is the result of being declared guilty of having sin upon you, that relationship with God? What happens? You're forsaken. You're separated from him, with the wage of sin being death. So if someone ever would ask you, so why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't he have just said like he did, you know, be healed or walk? Why couldn't he have just said your sins are forgiven? Well, the answer is from the scriptures, which is the wages of sin is death. And so the one who is bearing sin will pay the price for sin, which is death. Forsaken wage of sin. Now, let's hear it from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. And note as we read these verses, there will be this, um, this pronoun, our, our repeated throughout the text. 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So speaking of the suffering servant or the Messiah, the one we know as Jesus. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The good news in your suffering is that who also knows suffering? Jesus. You participate in his suffering, he participates in your suffering. Now, verse 4, note the, note the description, the possession of our. Surely he took up what? Our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. And read the sentence, what does it say? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Innocent man goes to the cross, takes up our infirmities, carries our sorrows, is declared guilty, stricken by who? Not by the Romans. Stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's an exchange. Our sins are placed on, on the innocent one, on Christ. Paul says it this way, the one who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. What is... What does Pilate say? I find no basis for a charge against this man. What does Isaiah say? He's done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, I want you to read slowly with me the next verse. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Isn't that overwhelming to read those words? Have you ever felt crushed? Ever felt that God's hand was so heavy upon you that he was crushing you, causing you to suffer? Well, this is the man. This is the Messiah, the anointed one. It is the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why? Did he deserve it? Not guilty. He deserves it because you and I, our sin is placed upon him. And so it is the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Now does that bring you comfort in the time of of a terrified conscience I think you can do this to the devil. When the devil comes to you and accuses you of your sin and tries to separate you from God and from Christ, you can speak right back to the accuser. By the way, that's what Satan's name means, is accuser. When he accuses you, you can look right back at the devil and say, you're going to try and crush me with this sin, but yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And I own my sin, and you own your sin. We're not saying we don't sin. We just say our sin is placed on Christ. And the Father has caused him to suffer. And the Father has crushed him. And you can speak to the devil that way. Satan, you accuse me rightly, but you know what? Look to the one, the seed of the woman who will crush your head. Has crushed your head in his death and his resurrection. So let's continue. On trial, accused, innocent, assumed sin, declared guilty, forsaken, wage of sin is death. But in the process, he does say these words, it is finished. Not, oh, it's over, or my suffering is done. It is finished means everything that needs to be done for salvation has been accomplished. It is finished. Then he dies But what happens on the third day? He rises. And you come on a Sunday morning, because every Sunday you come, it's the first day of the week, and it reminds you of what event? The morning that the women went to the tomb, and the angel said, he's not not here, he's risen just as he said. Isaiah speaks of this too. Look at verse 11. What does it say? After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. 
and therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He would divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What's really happening here? What's really happening is that the triune God is working all things together for the redemptive good. Now if that's true, we have to ask the question then is who's really in control? So turn to Acts chapter 2 and 4 because when there is such suffering, the question will always come up, is God is God really in control? Is God really working? How long is this going to go on? Is this beyond, beyond his hand? In Acts chapter 2, it's the Pentecost account, and Peter speaks to those who are gathered there, and he says these words to them. Verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Now note verse 23. It'll tell us who is in control. This man was handed over to you, how? By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God is fully aware, the triune God is fully aware of the events handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, you played a role in this. What did you do? You, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But what did God do? But God raised him. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. They are proclaiming in their Pentecost sermon who's in control, aren't they? Men of Israel, you did all these things. You put him to death, but God raised him to the de- from the dead. But this is all God's purpose. Go to Acts chapter 4, you'll hear a similar account. Peter and John are speaking of this crucified and risen Christ. And they're being told by the rulers, the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, to stop it. Stop talking about it, stop blaming us. We're going to persecute you. We're going to scourge you. We're going to put you in prison. They don't know what to do with these men. And they release these men. And in verse 23, it says there, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported to them all that the chief priests and the teachers of the law had said. Verse 24 says, When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And note how they pray. What do they invoke? What part of God's activity? Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. In other words, you're the one who created all things. We're going to appeal to you. And you also did what? You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father, your servant David. They appealed to the first person of the Trinity, the Father's creation, the third person, work of the Holy Spirit, right? Speaking by the prophets, and also the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do they quote? Being good Jewish boys, saturated with the scriptures, knowing all things now, after Pentecost, the Spirit has enlightened them, that all things, the Psalms specifically, speak about who? Messiah. They quote Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. When a king in David's line is anointed, they would sing this song. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. And what then do they do? They connect the events, don't they? It says, indeed, here's our two kings, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. And now there's a schemy word, isn't it? You see it? And they conspired. They conspired, they plotted, they schemed against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. But then what do they say? They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. You see how the early church is working here? They had no idea what was going on during Holy Week, did they? I mean, they were trying to manipulate it themselves. Peter trying to draw a sword out, trying to you know, save Jesus. But afterwards, in Pentecost, it's revealed to them that all of this, all of this was under God's control for a redemptive purpose. This then is the substance of what Romans 8 speaks of, doesn't it? We know that in all things, God works together for the good. Isn't this the story of the entire scriptures, the Old Testament through the New Testament? Joseph says to his brothers, when they think that he's now going to pay them back for their treachery, their father's dead, they're thinking, now Joseph's really going to take it out on us. What does Joseph say to them? He says, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. And so Joseph declares to them who who was the one that sent him to Egypt? Not the brothers. Joseph says, God sent me ahead of you. Proverbs says, well, in his heart a man plans his course, but who directs his steps? The Lord. Jesus says in his Passion Week, it must happen this way. Peter, you have your own ideas. Herod has his ideas. Pilate, his ideas. Jesus says, it must happen this way. The early church says, well, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. And so, with boldness, they then pray, consider their threats and enable your servants then to speak your word with great boldness. So who's really in control? You tell me. Though the devil schemes, Jesus always wins. Now, that's good news. I mean, that's good news because I'm a schemer and you're a schemer. I'm just like Peter saying, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I have other ideas about how the kingdom should go. And then those are a scheme on the other side, and you're on the receiving end of it. And what's the good news? No matter who's the schemer, no matter who conspires, whether it's Herod or Pontius Pilate or their chief priest or the disciples, who always wins? Well, Jesus always wins, and his kingdom moves forward. So what's really the purpose? Finally, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, 1752. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5, but as I do, I want you to put side by side these two uh, lists. I just don't want you to see them as a list, you know, that side by side as a you know, list of facts, but also to figuratively see it in this way that you too will stand and I will stand before the throne of God to give an account, will be put on trial, but 
Who will we have standing beside us? Those who are of us who have faith in Christ. Who stands beside us? The Lord Jesus. Just as Satan is called the accuser, Jesus is called our advocate or our intercessor or our mediator, all these legal, legal words. So literally, he will stand beside us. Now, if you don't have faith in Christ, how do you stand? Alone. By yourself. Alone. Let's put the two together. So our brother, the Lord Jesus, and we, we will both be put on trial. The Lord Jesus is on trial. He's falsely accused. But when we are put on trial, rightly accused. You run yourself through the Ten Commandments, and the only conclusion you will have at the end is, I am guilty. I'm guilty. That's why we began. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So Jesus gets the verdict innocent. We get the verdict guilty, and rightly so. He is rightly innocent, and we are rightly guilty. Well, we give him our sin. Isaiah speaks of that. He takes up our infirmities. He assumes it. And because he assumes it, he becomes it. Then he is rightly declared guilty. But because our sin is on Jesus and his righteousness is on us, then we're declared what? We're declared righteous. Big words, right? You probably never hear these in the workplace or at school. Righteous. Reconciled. Righteous means we're just declared right with God. Right with him. Not separated, not forsaken as Jesus was, but rather reconciled, brought near because of the work of Christ. Jesus suffers death, the wage of sin being death, but we're given the gift of life. Not only life here, but life eternal. Jesus says it is finished so that he can say to each one of us, well now I'm making all things new. And Jesus rises on the on the, on the first day, right, the first day of the week, three days, he will rise again. He rises, and the promise is to us, one day, a resurrection. And so, he stands side by side with us. Accuser comes, and where do we point? Point to the work of Christ. To the work of Christ. Now, let's read Romans chapter 5 and see this. Beginning at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still, and what is the word that describes you and I? Powerless. Christ died for thee. What is another word that describes us? Ungodly. You look at the list. You are on trial, rightly accused. Verdict is guilty. Verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ did what? died for us. The gospel is not God loves you. Now, doesn't that sound strange? The gospel is not God loves you. I mean, think of John 3, 16. Does it just say, for God so loved? No. It says, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The power of salvation that we're not ashamed of is this. Not that God loves you, but rather... God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from 
What is that? How is God described here? A God of? Does he have wrath? Well, here's what the scripture says. Is he a holy God? Is he a righteous God? Is he a just God? Absolutely. And does he pour his wrath out on sin? Absolutely. What does Isaiah 53 say, though? It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And so what is the good news? Where is the wrath of God directed? Not to us, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He can be holy and righteous and just and at the same time be loving and compassionate and kind and gracious. And you say, how can those two be the same? How can they coexist? Well, you move them to the middle at the cross and there you have it all, don't you? A wrath of God put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which then gives to us his grace and righteousness. Now note, verse 10, for if when we were, what does it describe us as? God's enemies. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Isn't that amazing? That if God is kind-hearted towards you when you're his enemy, and he does that through his death of his son, now that the son has died and has risen on behalf of you, what, what do you have this hope is buoyed in is what? If that's how God treated me when I was en his enemy, how does he treat me when I am his child? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, and what's the word? Big word. Reconciliation. Which means we are made right. We who are far away from God have been brought near to him. So you tell me, what really is the purpose of all of this? Sins are taken and life is given. Sins are taken and life is given. I was teaching in Africa to pastors uh, who have really nothing. And we were talking about the forgiveness of sins. And I just asked them, I said, so um, when you have the forgiveness of sins, what do you have? And now, mind you, they have nothing. What did they say? They spread their hands out like this. With great big smiles, they said, we have everything. We have everything. What do you have when you have the forgiveness of sins? Everything. Isn't this what Romans 8 says? If God is for us, who then can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, give us everything? When you have the forgiveness of sins at the center, no matter what comes into your life, you can speak to the devil and say, though you have taken everything away from me, I still have everything everything in Christ. I have everything in Christ. Now, here's the really profound part of this gift. Is that one day we will stand in front of another throne, won't we? But we also stand in front of a throne right now. And we stand with Jesus beside us. And when we stand with Jesus beside us, now we can come before the throne of God, the Father. A Father's heart. And what is our posture? What does Hebrews 4 say? You read it with me. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence 
so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When it says you come before the throne of grace in confidence, does this mean, you know, I'm just going to have a really positive attitude today in my prayer life because I'm going to believe boldly for God to do things on my behalf. It is not about you, is it? You come before the throne of grace with confidence because who stands beside you? Your brother. Your brother, the sinless one, the innocent one who took sin upon himself. And now you come as a beggar offering nothing but you want and you're asking to receive everything. And what is the everything? Mercy and grace. And do you have a time of need? As long as you have a breath, you have a time of need, don't you? To help us in our time of need. In these quiet moments, as a way to prepare yourself to come to the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about coming before this altar with nothing except your sins. That's rightly said. You come with nothing, and you offer God nothing except your sins. And where do you place them? On the Lord Jesus. And what does the Lord Jesus give you? My body, my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you receive that, go back to your seat with a heart wide open saying, I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good and I have the forgiveness of sins and where I have the forgiveness of sins, I have everything. And you go back and you pray and you say, you told me, Father, that I can now come before you with great boldness and confidence. And I have a time of need and you know my need, and I'm asking you for grace, and I'm asking you for mercy. In whose name? In Jesus' name. You quiet yourselves, you spend some moments, I'll prepare the table and invite you forward to receive the Lord's Supper.